the transmitter. Welcome to Synaptic, our podcast that investigates the people, the research, and the challenges of the neuroscience field. That's right, the show has broadened. We will still cover autism, but now our guests will include all of neuroscience. I host Synaptic, and my name is Brady Huggett. For this show, for episode seven, let's start with the Green Line in Beirut, Lebanon. After the start of the Lebanese Civil War in 1975, Beirut was divided into West and East. West Beirut was mainly Muslim and had both secular and Muslim militias. East Beirut was mainly Christian and had mostly Christian militias. These groups set up snipers and barricades along the divide that split Beirut, and in the dead zone between these factions, where no one lived and people were rarely seen, slowly and steadily a rich green foliage grew. And from that, this strip of demarcation became known as the Green Line. Now, people did cross from one side to the other through specific channels, to visit family members who lived just blocks away on the other side, or to buy bread, or to talk with friends. Militias stood at either end of these crossing points, monitoring who passed through. This, of course, made the journey dangerous. Kidnappings and executions occurred regularly over the years along the checkpoints, sometimes happening in response to each other. You killed one of ours, we'll kill one of yours, that sort of thing. But for our purposes, one night in 1984, a 17-year-old boy named Artem Patapudian crossed from West Beirut, where he lived, into East Beirut to spend the night with a friend. That's our guest for today, Artem Patapudian. Artem and his family were Armenian, and Armenians were considered neutral in the war. But when he crossed back into West Beirut the next day, he was stopped by armed militia and held for several hours. Eventually he was let go, but when he got home and was safe again, he realized, I can't live like this. And so he began to think of ways to change his life. We talked about that on this podcast. We also talked about his journey to America and his experiences as a new immigrant in Los Angeles and the loneliness of that. And of course, we talked about his scientific journey through his discoveries working with the peripheral nervous system and proprioception, all the way to winning the Nobel Prize in 2021. All that is coming up. Now, I visited Artem at his office in the Scripps Research Institute, about 15 miles north of San Diego. We cleared a space on his desk, and I set up the mics. And we took a long look at his office phone, right next to my recording equipment, before deciding to leave it where it was. No one calls me anyway, he said, which I found hard to believe, but actually no one did call during the interview. But there was a fan outside his window, so you can hear that a little bit in the background. I recorded him on September 22, 2023 an overcast but nice morning in Torrey Pines. And it was a wonderful interview, I thought. He's a gracious person and patient, or anyway, he was with me. Let's begin here, where I'm asking him how long he's been in California. This should be all you need, so here is your episode of Synaptic with Artem Patapudian, starting right now. You've been here in California for like 30 years plus, right, at this point? That's right. Yeah. And, I mean, I've done some 
research, of course. So I know that you actually did not grow up in California. That's right as well. Yeah. And you were born, I think, in Beirut. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm of Armenian origin and I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. And I was there for 18 years before I came to California. Yeah. So this was this was during... Well, let's see. So the Lebanese Civil War started in 75. That's exactly right? right. Yeah. So I was eight years old. I was born in 67. So, I mean, Lebanon was a beautiful country, yeah. but most of my memories are, you know, post-Civil War, which is kind of sad. Um, and yeah, so I, I guess one message is if you can survive the war in Lebanon, you can survive science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so you're, gr- you're growing up. Did you have an interest in science when, when you were young? Um, not too much. I um, I mean, a little bit, but I wasn't one of those kids that, you know, I knew I was going to be a scientist when I was young at all. My parents had, um, quote-unquote, brainwashed me that I wanted to become a medical doctor. Well, um, I mean, that's science in a way, yeah. That's science in a way. But I think mainly for selfish reasons, they wanted a family doctor. Yeah. Um, and my sister and brother were both... Um, very scared of like cockroaches and stuff and i was the tough one that would go and get rid of them and so they're like okay you're the you're, you're the, the medicine guy <laughs> so that was my initial link to biomedical <laughs> research where do you fall with the siblings you're the oldest i'm the youngest the actually. youngest the youngest and the toughest then <laughs> in some ways in some way okay so you're growing up when when the civil war happens when it starts does your family think well what do we do what are we going to do are we going to try to live through this? I mean, I, you know, I know that obviously people left the country then. Yeah, so it, it's it's a bit complicated because of the Armenian origin. So we um, we lived in an Armenian bubble. So my parents were born in Lebanon, mm-hmm. but um, their grandparents, of course, are the product of the migration because of the Armenian genocide from modern Turkey to Lebanon. Yep. So although we're Lebanese, we were in a way both acted and treated like second-class citizens. So, I mean, we love Lebanon, love lots of things about Lebanon, but that's, you know, homeland is Armenia still. So that complicates the equation of what you're asking is, you know, maybe if you felt and were Arabic and you would have hung out more, but a lot of Armenians, I think, were like, okay, as you said, do we stay or do we leave? And it took us a long time to leave, so... Um, after 12 years of being in the civil war, but we finally left. Um, of course, many people, Armenian and non-Armenians, left Lebanon. Um, and yeah, it was a it was an interesting but tough childhood. Yeah, I mean, I, I, do you know who, who Nubar Afayan is? Of course, yeah. Right. So I, I talked to him, I know and him he, well. he was telling me, right? So you, your backgrounds are very similar, actually. Very, Armenian very similar. Growing up in Beirut, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was telling me that, yeah, the buildings were coming down. Uh, there were dead people in the street, their bodies in the street. And, you know, that was part of his childhood, too. And you're saying that sounds like that was part of yours. Oh, absolutely. I mean, whenever there were bombs, we used to all go to the shelter downstairs. And, um, you know, it's it just some some really scary stuff. I was even um, kidnapped by some militias for a few hours crossing west and east beirut that was actually the event that made me say okay i gotta get out of here just you were kidnapped yes how old were you i was about 17 so Um, tell me what happened so i was uh, you know there's west beirut and east beirut west beirut is mainly muslim east beirut is mainly christians at that time now that doesn't exist and armenians are christian but because we were pretty neutral in the war we were 
pretty much the only Christians that could go back and forth mm-hmm. as we wished. Um, so, but I was stayed the night with a friend in East Beirut, and I was walking across the border to West Beirut when um, I heard, you know, gunshots, and I started running. And some militia folks who were, you know, saw this 17-year-old running towards them, and so they stopped me, um, asked for my ID, and in in a tragic way, in all um, Lebanese IDs, your religion is written on it. Mm-hmm. And so they saw Christians, so they were a bit, you know, some problematic issues there. But I think after a few hours, they realized I was not dangerous, and they let me go. But it was a huge scare for me. Oh, and, yeah. And so a- as you're running, you say they confronted you. I mean, they yeah. guns drawn, they confronted yeah. you, stop, yeah, know, the whole absolutely. thing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think when I got home, that's when I said, okay. I'm <laughs> I can't live like this. I can't this. live like this. Yeah. I think the bombs are not personal, you know, like uh, they fall and you hide or... But when it's just personally, uh, you get held like that. It's a, it's a different, it's a different effect on your psyche. Oh, for sure. Yeah. All right. So you're growing up in this tumultuous childhood where the city is literally under siege at times, and y- y- and you still think you want to be a doctor all, all the way through, yes. you know, yes. your school. I was actually at American University of Beirut, which which is a wonderful university yeah. with an American affiliation, and I was um, at that time pre-med student there one I, I did one year at the American of University of Beirut before Chemistry. I extract yeah oh, and thinking I'm going to use this to build a career as a physician yep right. that's right and, and then after the kidnapping you said I can't stay here yes so how did you did your whole family leave with you they all emigrated at once so it just so happened that my mom's sister um, was citizen of United States so they had applied for us to get a green card uh-huh. um, which got delayed and for a long time but finally just about that time we received positive response for that as well so we were able to come in as um, immigrants um, as with a green card um, whole family um, Brother, actually, I came I came first uh, my sister never came my brother was too old to get the green card because he was above 18 years uh-huh. old at the time and after a year that I came my parents came after that so you were first I was first with my brother um, who went directly to graduate school but he wasn't an immigrant he was on a student visa all right so then you're first mm-hmm. and is your plan to continue medical school you know you're yeah. leading up the medical so, school you know financially we're not very well off and so the first thing I did when I came to um, California is that I wanted to go to a public school and you can't qualify for uh, reduced tuition until yep. you're a resident. So yep. I had to live in California for one year um, before going to college. So the first year I just worked at a few jobs, um, minimum wage, and um, became a resident. And that was, despite all the difficulties in Lebanon, that was the toughest year. I oh, think, I'm sure. In my, so in my life. you left your country behind, your family behind. Yeah. But you did All have alone, a, yeah. You, well, you had a relation in... So my brother was in town um, for a few months. We, we, we didn't have a car, so he yeah. lived in... We lived 20 miles away, but we hardly saw each other. Um, but pretty soon, we got a car and started living together, and that was that was a huge relief. When you were living separately, were you paying rent someplace, or what was happening? Yeah, so I bought this tiny... Not bought. I was renting in this tiny apartment and working at um, an Armenian newspaper um, as a... doing odd jobs and um, 
one of the things I remember actually is that I didn't have too much money to buy furniture, so yeah. I just had a makeshift bed. But I was going crazy in the silence of this apartment by yeah. myself. So I went and bought a um, this black and white TV that I still have. I've kept it. Uh, it was sixty dollars. I remember. I mean, with like the rabbit the antenna, ears on yeah, top. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. tiny black and white twelve-inch TV. And um, there were color TVs at that point, but I just couldn't afford it. Yeah, yeah. And I would just have it on all the time just to keep me company because it was just a, a kind of a lonely time. Anything, news, Anything, sitcoms, yeah. whatever. Reruns of Taxi. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, that's, okay, so you're living there by yourself. You're working, you, you weren't a, were you a writer at the newspaper? You're just helping put the newspaper out? I, it's so bizarre to say this. I, my English was terrible. I mean, I, I knew the theoretical English, but I, I had a hard time understanding people because I uh -huh. thought they were talking so fast. But I was put in as the English section editor, which is <laughs> just so ridiculous. But I also helped. Um, every Tuesday we used to you know, print the labels on the thing, go to the post office and drop the newspaper. It was yeah. a weekly. Yeah. I, I even got to... Um, write the horoscopes in the, in the <laughs> newspaper because uh, the editor saw some older lady at an event and and she told him that you know I'm I'm reading the same thing every few months the same uh, Horoscope. horoscopes and what how's <laughs> how's that possible and he came and said oh that's embarrassing we got we need new material so we should write them so <laughs> what do you know so I started I, I knew nothing about it <laughs> and I started making this stuff up and I was having fun with it because I would write a specific one to a new friend of mine and say hey read your horoscope and he would come back and say I read it it makes no sense why, why do you think this is relevant to me and then I found out that uh, the printer just would cut and randomly put them so I was specifically writing some advice for someone born in in certain month and she would just randomly put them everywhere but but even what you were specifically writing for someone born in a month you're just making that up yeah like this yeah. week you should yes. look out for yes. good luck in yes. oh my god yes so i apologize for all those people who follow <laughs> this and think it's some kind of science so uh, you would have to do 12 12 of those <laughs> yeah. every issue for the months yes right? oh yes. my god uh, that sounds amazing. That though. was the most fun, actually. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this paper is published for the Armenian diaspora. Community in, it's all over the U.S. Oh, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it goes actually to, you know, Boston, New York, L.A. Oh, wow. yeah. well, I mean, you were, you provided, I mean, so this, <laughs> this horoscope was going out all over the country. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I mean, not that I've believed in horoscopes before, but I definitely don't now after hearing, <laughs> after hearing that story. All right, so that was one job that you had. Yep, yep. Uh, just to get the money for the rent while you establish residency. Yep, yeah. absolutely. And about a year later, you you could apply to schools, and you applied. Yes, did I, you apply widely or just UCLA? I applied to um, just a couple of schools in LA, um, UCLA and Cal State Northridge, which is um, another wing of public school in California system. And the idea is, if I wasn't going to get into any of them, I would just go to community college for a year and then transfer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was very fortunate to be accepted at UCLA. Interestingly, the Cal State Northridge, that was my kind of um, safety school, didn't accept me. <laughs> um, and so, so, but anyways, it worked out great. I went to UCLA and... Um, All right, that so that, so, I mean, obviously there's a huge culture shock coming from Beirut to LA, right? 
but but also this is very difficult you're by yourself you're lonely it sounds like a little bit of a language barrier language wall that's that you right. deals as well right. and then but when you start school you're s- thrown in with all these other undergrads who are m- not mo- well probably mostly americans yeah that's right yeah did you was it a struggle to blend in with them How it did was you it yeah. was um i think um for the first three four years that i came to la it was it was a tough struggle and that's that's where the the um, Armenian community was so essential because I was part of the Armenian Student Association at UCLA. That that, that was my mm. my kind of social group at the time. Mm. Um, Till I start working in a lab, that kind of um, a little bit replaced it. But at this time, my parents were in LA, so I actually moved in with them, and I was commuting to UCLA. You know, thirty miles, twenty miles away from oh, okay. home in North Hollywood. So they moved over, yeah, a year later. They yeah. rented a place. Yeah. You, you moved in with them. Yes. Did your brother? No, he was... Um, he was already going off to graduate school, so I think he was um, he was living on USC campus. So. Okay, yeah. As you're at UCLA, you're still thinking, well, I'm working towards being a physician. That's right, that's right. right. But somehow that, obviously, that changed. That changed. What happened? Um, so it was interesting. I um, UCLA is a very large public school, and so my classes in biology were 100 to 400 students and I just realized that I need great letters of recommendation to mm-hmm. go to medical school and I wasn't getting to know any of the professors so my idea was to work in a lab just simply to get a letter of recommendation um, and I thought I hated research because I really disliked lab courses um, both in biology and chemistry I thought they were uh, boring, not creative, and stressful because... What if it failed? W- what if it failed and you had these expectations, it never worked out, you had to explain why. There's just, there's no joy of discovery, which mm. later, of course, I found that's the whole right. point of working Science. in a lab. Right. And um, But for you, but in as an undergraduate, it's sort of like, here's the steps that you do, and you should get this response. Yeah. And, when you f- and write exactly. it up when you're done. If exactly. you don't, you have to explain why, exactly. where your mistake. Okay. Which, which I found no joy in. Mm. And um, and so I started, you know, there was no email. So I, this is, you know, what year is this, 1988. So I started emailing, not emailing, calling a bunch of professors and saying, I, w- I want to volunteer to work in your lab. And literally got 10 negative responses. And the last one was also going to be, you know, she's like, no, this is Judy Leniel. I called it, no, I don't think we need it. And then right before hanging up, she said, what's your GPA? And it was 3.7, which is respectable, but, mm-hmm. you know, not super amazing. And she's like, come talk to me tomorrow. And that was it. She introduced me to two graduate students um, to help them out. And um, l- literally, I fell in love with the whole culture and doing science. Uh, Beca- because of what they were doing? You, you were watching them, and they had joy for science, and you picked up on that? Or Absolutely. So I think it was a dual thing of the actual science, which is, you know, when they described to me that they're, they found this new gene that, mm-hmm. that controls how Drosophila goes from a single fertilized egg to this patterned mm-hmm. embryo, and they were trying to find out how it does it and I was sequencing the gene for the first time. Mm-hmm. So it was just super exciting. And on top of that, uh, um, later on, I've always said I found my tribe in people who do biomedical research. And these were, to me, all super interesting international group of young scientists. You know, One was from Boston, one was from Iceland, someone was from Italy, and they were all 
drinking fancy beers as happy hours on Friday. I'm like, what is this? This is great. Yeah. And um, and then I found out that you can go to graduate school, and not only you don't have to pay tuition, you get a stipend. Yeah. And and for me that was like that was it. It's like I get to do this fun thing called research and. And on top of it, I get paid. This is heaven. So I kind of um, decided to switch from having wanting to go to medical school to to, to graduate school. So I got some pushback actually from my parents. I was going to ask. Yeah, what did they say? They weren't very happy about this, um, just because of they didn't know anything about research and if yeah. it was a stable job or if you would get a job or which was actually uh, a correct concern in some ways. Um, and my brother convinced me that I don't want to make this decision after four years thinking I'm going to go to medical school, that I should um, take the MCAT and the GRE and apply to both. And after I got in, just make a sane decision mm-hmm. that I have an option, but mm-hmm. I'm not doing this because I'm being lazy and I don't want to go into medical school. And, and I kind of did that and it and it all worked out. So. Oh, you took the MCAT, you did yeah, all that? Yeah, yeah. And did you apply to schools? I got I applied to schools. I did some MD-PhDs thinking, you know, this yeah. is in between the two. I didn't get into any of those. Um, I got into UC Irvine Medical School, but um, yeah, I decided to go to Caltech, still yeah. in Los Angeles yeah. for a PhD. Okay. So, right. So, your parents make peace with this, and you decide, well, I'm going to go into research, right? Yeah. And then, so Caltech. Yep. Not yeah. too far. Yeah, not too far, actually, very close. Uh, and did you know what you wanted to study there? Um, I think... I was very interested in developmental biology, and um, I, I did shift. I, I went thinking I was going to study transcriptional regulation, mm-hmm. but then um, really got interested in this lab uh, of Barbara Wald that they were, um, for the first time, figuring out kind of very similar to w- what I was doing in, in flies, but in, in, in a, a mouse system. Um, the same question of how does a fertilized uh, egg then decide to become a neuron or a muscle cell. Mm. And they had found these transcriptional regulators called the MyoD family that had the incredible ability that you put it in an undefined, undifferentiated fibroblast, and this one gene expression would be sufficient to make this into a muscle cell. So this kind of became a new passion, and that's what I spent five years at Caltech uh, studying. Yeah, and then so when that finished, you went and got your postdoc. But I think also you met your wife at Caltech. That's right. Was that in right. Barbara's lab? Or? Yeah, yeah, so she was, um, I, when I was a first-year graduate student, she was um, already a senior undergrad, and she did work in, in, the, in the same lab. and, and um, She had the same excitement for... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We both were studying the same thing, and... Um, uh, so that was fantastic, of course, as we've been together since then, and uh, it's been a very excellent experience. Yeah. When, when did you get married? And when I was um, a postdoc, and she just finished her PhD. So after she graduated, she moved to Berkeley, mm. and so we did a three-year of uh, long-distance relationship, and then I moved to postdoc at UCSF, um, and then... So we were back together, so and that's when we got married. Three years of your um, PhD, she was in that's Berkeley, right, that's right. right? And you kept it up, and yeah. then you went to okay. Yeah. So you finished your PhD, and you're looking for a postdoc, and were you looking specifically for one area or one lab? 
Well, I was looking at the Bay Area because that's yeah, where Nancy was and yeah. to to be reunited in a way. And so, and I I made a decision at that time either to go into neuroscience or immunology, and the idea was that both of those fields were, um, I think, very exciting things were happening there, um, and both had, in addition to academic interest, translational promise. And I tried to read papers in both uh, fields. And I thought that immunology was even more jargony than neuroscience, <laughs> and so I decided to go into into neuroscience. And but it is intimidating to get into the study of the you know the brain from when you don't have any yeah. education in it. And so my plan was to go into the peripheral nervous system, where these neurons sense you know touch, pain, temperature. It's a simpler system outside the brain. And the whole idea was to ease into it, so do postdoc there, and then move into the brain. Oh, as I see. My, that was my plan. Ah, okay. Um, and um, 28 years later, I'm still in the peripheral nervous system. Well, I, I get this, like the brain being this, even today, this like vast unknown world, right? We're really still trying to understand it. And you thought, well, I mean, but you couldn't have thought that was beyond your means, right? You, I, I was a bit intimidated, hmm. for sure. Um, I think you got to understand that it's not just the complexity of the brain. All the tools to study the brain, which is, you know, electrophysiology, recording of neurons and stuff. So if you haven't done that, it's a completely different kind of concept. And it could be intimidating to a PhD student. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. So you're, you're thinking, well, if I can f- study this peripheral part of the uh, neuroscience, I can figure out the tools, and then later I can apply them to exactly. the brain if I want. Yeah. I, okay, yeah. good. Yeah. Okay, so then you studied under Luis Reichard, I think, That's at right. UCSF. Okay, so what were you looking at in your postdoc? Um, so, so Lou was involved in many different fields of neuroscience. One of them was this family of uh, proteins called neurotrophins, and uh, they're amazing molecules where they're kind of growth factors for neurons, and the whole idea was that you make too many neurons and kind of survival of the fittest kind of way, only a few of them survive that get to the right target, mm-hmm. get the right growth factors. Mm-hmm. And these were these neurotrophins, so, so that um, some peripheral neurons, for example, express the receptor and send out projections to the skin, and if they got enough neurotrophin, they would survive, the rest would die away. And so it was kind of very Darwinian idea at the cellular level. Yeah. and. So how these neurotrophins were regulated and what was the consequence of not having them in vivo was kind of part of my postdoctoral work. So that takes you to almost 2000, That's I right. think, right? Yeah. So you finished your postdoc and now, well, I mean, you have to decide what's next for your career. You're married at this point, right? That's right. Yeah. So how did you, how did you and Nancy decide what to do next? Um, so, you know, at first we were thinking that we should, I should wait um, because I had kind of done enough postdoc work to be able to get a job, but we thought we would wait and um, and look for jobs together. Mm. But um, people strongly suggested that if you have a good paper published as a postdoc, you don't want to wait two, three more years because if you're not productive after that, people will question right. it. And Nancy very generously encouraged me to to look for a position right then and there and said, we'll figure it out. And um, so I mainly applied to academic places, but it was the middle of the year, so I did a small search. People in my lab now apply to 30, 40 places. I only applied to three places. And one of them was this very unique position here in San Diego, 
where um, Pete Schultz, who has become my mentor, has started a new institute called the Genomics Institute for Novartis Research Foundation, uh -huh. short for GNF. Yeah. And this is an institute that the, the Swiss pharmaceutical company has funded, but it was not going to take active role in managing it. And we were just going to explore the new genomic data and they might get some interesting targets, uh, targets yeah. for, for, for patenting and, and working on it. So it was a fantastic environment in a way to do research in a slightly different way. Um, right, because you're number one, pharma usually, and Novartis does have some money. So you should have the money that you need to do the work that you right. want. And whatever you want to look at, they're okay with, as long as they get to sort of maybe pick and choose if anything does sort of that's strike right. their fancy. That's right. At the same time, you know, I had interviewed and had an offer from Columbia University in New York, and so I kind of told um, these guys in San Diego that this is great, but the idea was like a Bell Labs, you only have three people in your lab, but you uh -huh. do whatever you want, it's all paid for. Um, and so they managed to say, okay, we'll give you a joint offer with Scripps, which Pete was also, Pete Schultz was involved. And so I got this wonderful dual affiliation. I was 50% academic Scripps lab and 50% my um, was at GNF. And so started two physically labs next to oh, each other. Did. I didn't know that. And, the, and the, the GNF one was very small. Yeah, yeah. But, but they had lots of core facilities where you could... Uh, collaborate and 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 get stuff done. So it was it was very very incredible. When when you were saying, well, I also have this offer at Columbia. What you're saying was, I want a bigger group to collaborate with. Yes, I think uh, in 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 biology, you know, um, having a good size lab is important. And I always thought that you know, eight to sixteen is a good number mm. um, because with only three people, it's just very tough to be very productive. Uh, some people do it, yeah. Um, but it's 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 great to have more. Uh, also, I've as I've learned in my career is that if you only have three people and two of them leave at the same time, you lose all the connection with the ongoing work, and so the new people have no one to learn from. Uh. So I think having a, a good size lab is is important for that reason as well. Uh, Almost where like the turnover, yeah, t yeah, turnover is not as painful. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you said earlier that. If you're coming out of your postdoc and you're looking for work and you've had a good paper, you should kind of strike while the iron's hot. What, right. what paper had you published that? Um, we had published a paper in, um, in, in science that showed that this other pathway, the WINT pathway, controlled one of the neurotrophin, um, called neurotrophin 3, mm -hmm. which was, again, uh, very much required for survival of a special population of, of neurons, including, you know, proprioceptive neurons, uh, in, in the peripheral sensory neurons. Okay. So it was just connecting two different pathways together um, because I told you neurotrophins were very important in regulating how many numbers of neurons survive, but almost nothing was known about how neurotrophins themselves are regulated. And and this was kind of one of the first clues uh, of, of how that gets regulated. Okay. So you're setting up these dual labs. Are you still affiliated with the Novartis lab? You still are? Um, no, I'm not no. actually. So what happened? How did you become fully with Scripps? Um, so after Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator, yeah. I became an investigator. Yeah. Uh, that affiliation became a little bit more um, complicated. And um, so as the director change of Novartis, um, you know, Martin Seidel and Pete Schultz were very excited to keep this collaboration that I think has served both institutes mm. very well. Um, 
the new institute had thought that was more problematic in keeping that uh, affiliation, and so it kind of came to an end. Because these ties to industry, right? Yeah. yeah. Of course, after the Nobel, the head of Novartis Research told me that he's so upset that that relationship didn't continue till the end because they could have claimed the Novartis researcher becoming the Nobel. Nobel yeah, my God, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so you're, you're building your lab at Scripps then, I'm solely doing that, and eventually you just mentioned the Nobel, you do win a Nobel, so what work were you doing that led you up to where we are now, like 20, you won the Nobel in 2021? That's right. So um, one of the things I, I think realized when um, I started my own position is that I was very interested in this developmental questions of how these sensory neurons become different. How does one neuron decide to sense cold mm. while another senses pain, while another senses light touch? Um, very interesting question. But it was just this idea that, you know what's even more interesting is how these neurons actually sense warm, cold touch and pain. Because this is something that all neurons have to develop and become different. But these... And they're specific for each. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. But how do these neurons actually sense physical stimuli? You know, uh, pressure is energy, temperature is energy. How do you translate these physical stimuli into an electrical signal that In neurons understand? Yeah. Right? There's nothing known about that. Um, when I actually started my lab in 2000, um, just a couple of years before, David Julius's lab had identified the first um, heat and capsaicin activated ion channel, which turned out to be the, the, the channel that you use to sense noxious heat. And so we took a genomics approach to find more of these. And the first 10 years of my independent work, I made this sudden change, which almost no one does, because everybody assumes that what you did as a postdoc, you have to take that with you and it expand on that. Yep. I mean, it was kind of related. I was working on the same neurons, but the question became very different. Um, and so my lab identified the first cold-activated ion channel, trypamate, which also senses menthol, which has this cooling effect, uh, trypa1, which senses uh, many pungent compounds like wasabi and garlic, um, as well going. as other uh, as well as other ion channels and this was you know work that was also done in David Julius's lab my lab and, and 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 many others but it was a very exciting time where we were finding the same family of ion channels this transient receptor potential ion channels each tuned to very different modalities that gives us the sense of uh, both chemical and thermal um, responses to, to to these stimuli, but the the idea that there's something for sensing wasabi, right, is so far so specific. It, it I mean, it it doesn't it isn't specific to wasabi. I understand that there's other things that it can sense, but how have neurons evolved to be yeah. that specific? Yeah, it's one of the most fascinating stories my lab has been uh, involved in. Um, so it actually so you know most receptors. They sense ligands yeah. by this old-fashioned lock and key mechanism. Yeah, so yeah. there's a pocket on the receptor. The ligand fits. Conformational change activates downstream pathways. Yeah. So one has evolved to do something completely different, and that is it senses reactive chemicals. So actually wasabi mm. and 
the active ingredient in garlic don't have any similarity in their shapes all they do is react with cysteines so they are reactive chemicals so trip a1 has evolved to sense reactive chemicals that it senses through its cysteines and sends the message and the idea is it's evolved to recognize damaging stimuli so wasabi might not be that damaging but it kind of fits into that little niche of uh, molecular biology and that's why it feels like burning mm-hmm. most animals would think of it as pain mm-hmm. we humans being unusual have grown to love it <laughs> <laughs> so it's the cysteine that is the commonality there that's right, right. Uh, that is so fascinating. When, That's when why all these ligands that have no shape similarity can all activate trip A1. And when we did screens to find agonists of, of trip A1, usually you would, you know, at Novartis, we would screen 2 million compound yeah. libraries and find a handful, maybe 100 activators. Yeah. For trip A1, 10% of the compounds would activate it almost because there's lots of reactive chemicals out there. Uh-huh. So I'm um, also, f- when you were thinking about your research, right? Did you just wonder one day, you're like, how is it that, because I've, I've, it's such a simple question and it's never occurred to me start, until I started looking at your research. It's like, why, how is it that when I put my hand against the wall, this outward pressure creates a current that then tells my body what's happening? Did you just wonder one day how this works? Um, so I think the conscious decision in 2000 when I started my lab to focus on these receptors had that in mind already. And, um, and so... There was temperature, there's chemical, and there's pressure sensing. Mm-hmm. Um, pressure sensing was completely unknown. There was nothing known at the time. And as I said, the first 10 years, we kind of worked on these temperature sensors. There was always in the back of our mind of the elephant in the room is this mechanosensors. Not only they weren't known in touch and pain sensation, we didn't know how muscles or, or blood pressure, all having right. to do with pressure is right. regulated. So that was something we were very interested in, but it took us about eight, nine years to start focusing on it because we were so busy working on the temperature sensors, which I think are also very interesting, of course. But it's just uh, in science, sometimes you have to look at a field and say, okay, I think the main big questions of temperature sensing are now maybe solved and the field is getting into more details. And I should say this is a very subjective analysis that are still people doing excellent work on those sensors but for me what i was interested in them was kind of answered already and so then we made a conscious effort to say okay let's not focus on pressure sensing right like here's a new challenge let's figure this out okay Uh, and this i think if i'm not mistaken this is piezo one and piezo two that's right right so tell me about working with that yeah so um bertrand coast this postdoctoral fellow came to the lab who had experience recording from these channels and um, so it's kind of a very simple assay where it's whole cell electrophysiology you're Mm -hmm. recording currents in the cells while you actually with a glass probe poking the cell and if the cell expresses a mechanically activated channel then just simply gentle poking of the cell like elicit a current yeah yeah okay the plasma membrane of a hex cell let's say Um, and so initially we were trying to find this from this DRG peripheral nervous system neurons that we've been working on for a long time. Mm-hmm. His PhD actually had recorded from these neurons and found these beautiful mechanically activated currents. But very soon we realized that these are very heterogeneous cells. They're difficult to work with. They don't divide. You have to culture them. And trying to find it from them 
was close to impossible with the current techniques. Um, so there we made a decision that made all the difference. And in science, you know, some people say very correctly, and I agree, you should pick the most reductionist approach to a question that's still meaningful. And as, as your first question. As your first question. Yeah. And so if our interest was to find a mechanically activated channel, um, why not find it from the easiest system, which in this case would be a cell line that's homogeneous, you can divide and grow it in a petri dish as much as you want, find it from there, and then you go back and say, where's this relevant in vivo? Is it in the RG neurons? Is it in heart muscle? Is it in um, other pressure sensing mm -hmm. system? Maybe hearing. Um, and this was the key. So because then Bertrand just screened cell lines, easy to work with cell lines, and found that this one of them that's heavily used in neuroscience research called Neuro2A cells um, actually had mechanically activated currents very similar to what was found in, in the RGs. And once he picked that, he used a, at that time, new technique called RNAi screens, which mm -hmm. you can knock down one RNA at a time. Um, and so he made a list of genes that are expressed in Neuro2A and not in other cells, but could be ion channels, which mainly means that it has to have multiple transmembrane domains. Um, somehow made them into a list and one by one started knocking them out to see if if you knock down gene X would this mechanically activated current go away. It was still not easy um, because it was such a low throughput screen. Uh -huh. um, so to test each candidate, it took him about two to three days to knock it down. Just think about it that his list was 300 genes yeah. long yeah. and um, and so we were ordering primers to knock down 30 at a time so the first 30 all negative yeah. the second 30 all negative we were starting to get very nervous for his career because as a postdoc you can't just have negative data right. um, but so if you if, if you screen 30 and you get a positive then you go one by one is that right well if no. you get a positive you stop because it means you found it but in that 30. Oh, yeah. I, I see. Oh, okay, I see. I'm sorry. So what, what he's doing is knocking genes one at a time yeah. and seeing that the mechanically activated currents are completely normal. So it's the wrong candidate. Yeah. And, and so 30, 60, and I think we ordered the next 30 saying, after this, we probably should find you another project. Mm. Because, you know, he's been there two years already and with no data. But the 72nd one was it. So when he knocked down this gene called FAM38A, which is unknown family 38 member A, he saw that this mechanically activated current almost disappeared. So that meant that this gene is required for this current. Yep. That was the, not the end of the story, but yep. it was a huge, huge eureka moment in a way for him and me and, and the whole lab. So um, later on, of course, when the next experiment you do is you get the full length cDNA of this gene and then transfect it in a completely naive cell. And he saw massive mechanically activated currents. So that meant that this gene is both necessary and sufficient to induce mechanically activated currents, which in genetics, that's what you want to believe that this is it. Of course, it took many more experiments to completely convince us. Right. But that was that was the beginning of the the big discovery. And so he's and you're publishing on this all along the way, I assume. Um, I, I it took a little bit more 
experiments than I was just suggested to even publish the first one. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah. But eventually you begin to like carve out space in this field and people begin to take notice. Like, and you're working with David Julius at this time? No, no. we were, so honestly, we were competitors when we were working on the trip channel. So this um, reactive chemical of trip A1 that I mentioned, yeah. I thought it was such a bizarre and unique discovery. Like I couldn't believe it that we were finding out. And yet David had found the same thing and we were we kept publishing a few weeks apart in competing journals. So it was a But were you communicating with each other or no. you would just see the paper and you go, Well yeah. he's done it too? Yeah. Yeah. At what point did you just go, Well, we should stop like maybe we should just work together? Um that's complicated if you have exactly the same interests. And um so we never got to work together. Hmm. But I think my big um advice to people coming up in the field is, I'm being completely honest here, is that it was a competitive environment between David's lab and my lab. And um, to me, that was a negative feeling that we were competing. Um, but looking back now, I feel like we really, at least from my perspective, we enabled each other. Mm -hmm. So I think there's this negative thinking of competition, but it's actually such a positive thing the way to think about it is that we're finding out these novel genes and novel mechanisms and how wonderful it is that within a few months you find that someone else has done exactly the same thing and found the same results. And sometimes when you don't find the same results, you keep looking at it and find out what's really happening. So this idea of competition as a bad thing is something I experienced during the process, but now look at it as a wonderful thing. Meaning that it spurred you on? That's or, right. Yeah, it kept you on your toes. You kept knew, you on your toes. Yeah. and But at the same time, as I said, science is not real till it's replicated by others. Uh -huh. And we were getting instant gratification in a that way. That you're right. That you're right. Uh. Uh, when you publish a few weeks apart in uh, completely independently, that's instant verification. And it's a good thing for science. Yeah, we're on the right path is what that means. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so I'm going to jump ahead. So yes. the Nobel Prize happens in 2021. Mm -hmm. And some of this is out there, so we don't need to get into all of it. But I mean, this was a pandemic year, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I know that, uh, just briefly tell me, so the way that it works, of course, is the Nobel Committee decides and then they call the people. And if it's here in the United States, for instance, it's usually very early in the morning because of the time difference. And they were trying to do that with you, but couldn't get through. Just That's tell right. me that story. That's right. So. Um, I mean, like most normal people, I have do not disturb on my iPhone, mm -hmm. which means you can't get through when I'm sleeping. Yeah. And um, so they were calling at 2 a.m., um, couldn't reach me. And they have someone there, I found out later, who specializes in this emergency situations to find someone close to you. And so they were Googling Pataputian, California, and they found this other number that they called. And it was my father, who's 94 years old, and his landline rang and he answered and he yelled at them first of why they're calling so late at night. But who then, is this? That who is thing. this? Yeah. Why are you bothering me? What are you selling? <laughs> but I think he quickly realized what was going on and then he was able to contact me. Because he's on your he, Because safe he's on my safe list. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I, when I looked at my voicemails, you know, there's three missed calls from Stockholm. So oh. I kind of figured out what's going on. And, and um, so I was able to connect with the head, uh, you know, Thomas Perlman, the head of the committee, just before he announced it publicly. And 
Um, so I was able to watch it on my computer, the announcement. So two things. One is, do you know when you're in the running? Do you know, the, I've always wondered this, does the Nobel yeah. say, I don't think they do, right? They don't say there's like six yeah. researchers we're considering this year. No, they don't. Um, so you had no idea. No, I did have an idea, but it's also it's a complicated answer, so bear with me. Mm-hmm. Um, people tell you, you know, people tell you either that, oh, I think this is... You your know, year. Not this your year. You don't know that. Mm. Um, th- they say you're in the consideration. Other people, maybe they should or shouldn't say, but they say, oh, I've nominated you. Okay, all right. So you kind of know that it's in the works. You also, David and I have won a couple of prizes before that. Uh, you won a Kavli PBVA, prize. the Kavli. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of, you know, it would be very naive to say, oh, I had absolutely no idea. Um, but you don't know the year, and also philosophically, I've kind of, although I knew, I've kind of put it aside. I didn't want to become, you know, one of these people who either lobbies for it or fixated on, or it. Fixated yeah. on it or considered that a goal. Like, didn't want any of that to happen to me. So that's why I wasn't going to undo my do not disturb that night. Um, and completely honestly, uh, because of the the COVID that you mentioned, like many others, I thought it was going to go to something related to COVID research, mm-hmm. either the vaccines or identifying the. Mm-hmm. And so this that year to me sounded like uh, that's obvious. Now that I know the process more, I'm not surprised that they haven't given one to that also because the amount of research they do is mind-boggling. They take this so seriously. The Nobel Committee. The Nobel yeah. Committee. So afterwards, they told me that they had a file on me for 15 years. Oh, wow. And that yeah. for COVID, I'm sure they're doing... It takes a while, It right? takes a while yeah. to make sure that they're giving it to the right discovery and to the right people. And so people have to realize it takes it takes time. Uh, so because of it, it being COVID, it, normally what happens is, oh, they announce who the winners are, and then there's a press sort of... Uh, the press descend on the house and someone's there with a camera and what and all that and that wasn't going to happen because of covid precautions but i think they reached out to you and said look we're going to announce this uh online and is there a way that we can get some sort of photo of you finding out or seeing this online so what happens is is um you're in bed i think because it's still early 2 30 a.m yeah you're in bed with your laptop watching and your son is in bed with you and your wife snaps this photo and it's a great photo it's like you have just looked up at the camera and your face is kind of it's not like um what do I want to say? <laughs> you're not shocked because you already gotten the call, yeah. but it's like a like a bemused tranquility or something, right? You're like, well, there it is. But your son, you know, he's got his hand on your shoulder and he's looking at the screen. He's like, that's my dad, right? I thought that was a very touching photo. And it got quite a bit of stir, I think, online. Yeah. Um, it is my favorite photo for many reasons. Um, one of them is the uh, the look being next to Luca, my son. Yeah. And I always joke around that he doesn't affectionately touch me like that all the time. <laughs> you have to win a Nobel. <laughs> and I study touch sensation, so mm. it all comes together. And, um, you know, whatever you say about Twitter and social media, in the absence of direct human contact, that's how I connected to the scientific community throughout the world with that photo. Yeah. That was the introduction of it as well as you know the Lebanese and Armenian community who've been so proud of this um, all happened through this this social media and that photo so it, it does have a very special uh, place in my in my heart yeah I would think so I mean and I'm, I don't know if your wife spends a lot of time taking photos but it was almost perfectly placed in the frame it was really, <laughs> she, it was really she's nice very, she's very good at it yeah 
Um, all right, there's a few things I want to I want to ask sure. you. And so so the Nobel happens, right? And and this has put uh, an amount of notoriety on you, right? I mean, the the world is sort of looking at you now, and they sort of know your name. And if they didn't before, they certainly do now. And you're etched in history, right? And it seems to me, just tell me if I'm wrong. Since then, you have sort of I don't know. It's like it's almost freed you up a little bit. <laughs> uh, th there are things you said in the past that when you first came to the U.S. You know, you're like, I kind of have this long name, Patapudian, and maybe I should shorten it, or, or that you didn't want people to know that you'd gone to the American University of Beirut for some reason. And then you're like, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's right. I think the, the, the liberating term that you used is just so apt. I think it's, uh, it, it's this, I also say things like, when I used to go to scientific conferences, I used to have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, like an agenda. Uh, in the sense that, ooh, I should meet this person who's famous. I should get to know this person who might be useful for us to collaborate with or, or something like this. And, you know, Nobel being the, the ultimate in uh, external validation, I feel like I don't need that anymore. And so both at, whether it's conferences or in the lab, it's gone back to the original reason why I got into science, which is the joy of discovery. Mm. And it's just this wonderful feeling that I don't have to prove myself anymore and I can just enjoy discovery, which is what we all get into science to do. Um, but what I would love to do is to give this advice to younger folks doing in science. And of course, it's easy for me to say this after the recognition. Right. But I truly believe that without receiving that validation, you can have this mentality to do what I'm doing now to a certain extent. You can tell yourself that I'm not gonna stress out if I don't get every grant or if I you know, don't get respect from this one scientist or if I don't get this paper accepted. Just focus on what you love about science. Um, again, I say this with lots of hesitation because someone will listen to this and say, it's easy for you to say, if I don't get my next grant, I can't do science. Right. And I understand that. I'm, I'm not saying completely forget about practical matters. But I think even if you move the needle a little bit towards more towards the joy of doing science, then you'll be much better scientist and happier doing it. Yeah, yeah. All right, I, I want to ask this because you mentioned earlier in Beirut, the Armenians are sort of, you said, I don't know, second-class citizens, as you said. And then you come to the U.S. Immigrants feel like an outsider, have to learn the language, fit in. You're again sort of like outside. Is that part of the chip that you said you had on your shoulder? Absolutely. And the example that you gave about... Um, which which I you know admitted to is that when I first came because of my name and you know Beirut Lebanon are just jokes about terrorism mm. and so I you know did not mention that I was at American University of Beirut for one year just put UCLA graduation mm. kind of and um, but again what I've noticed is after the Nobel I've gotten so many comments about other immigrants who look at me and say, oh my God, there's hope for us, because I feel like I don't belong, I have imposter syndrome, and then this guy that wasn't a genius biology with a pedigree of Harvard and MIT came here poor and made it so I can do it too. I never thought of myself as being a role model in mm. that sense, but almost got, I don't want to say forced into because I do it gladly, but seeing that response gives me so much energy and uh, my whole 
you know Twitter account I refuse to call it X is one of the goals is to do that is just show that I'm I wasn't very special and and I've made it and and you can too yeah and that seems to re- really resonate with people and I love that actually yeah I had this thought too that like as you get older I don't know when you're young maybe you're embarrassed about parts of your life I don't have this degree or my parents were this or or you know some my uh, parent was in jail or a rel- who kn- who knows what it is but when you get older you realize that everybody's life is kind of got things that maybe they're not proud of and it's fine and yeah, you've right. got that reached that point where like it doesn't matter yeah yeah, yeah. And, and also just sharing failures or sharing yeah. all this stuff you, you think sometimes is a bad thing but people people love that and and I think you're you'll be more appreciated and understood better if you talk about those things yeah I mean I guess if you had as a scientist or whatever in life, if you had just failed, 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 and never won the Nobel, it's a lot harder to put that forth. But when you actually got the validation, as you said, you said look, I was, you yeah. know, you, you that's, might see that's me. That's exactly right. Yeah, right. That's why I'm very careful in saying, I don't want someone to think that, yeah, you've, you've, you've got the Nobel now, you're telling me I should do this and that. But you know, I don't want to come off at that. But as I said, it's just a matter of where the needle is. It's just yeah. a, um, understanding this, dealing with it, and keeping the joy of, Discovery is very important for for sci- for scientists. I think. All right, two things left. Yeah. The U.S. has had this long issue with immigration. Administration after administration has just kicked it down the road. They haven't really tackled it. And I'm I'm living in New York, and you know our mayor has said we're having an immigration crisis. There's just the shelters are full, right? And I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about immigration, um, what your feelings are about it. I mean, all I can all I can say is that um, I've experienced it. It's very tough, um, but. Part of that going through that difficulty really prepares you to take on other difficulties in life. And it's not a, there, there was actually this one article, I don't remember the exact percentages, a huge percentage of people who've won the Nobel, not that that's just a uh, very important criteria, but it's a fact that are immigrants. Um, and, and so I think there is something about it. I think drive. it's something about the drive, something yeah. about experiencing something and then experiencing something else and the knowledge you get from that. Um, I feel like even in science, forget about immigration from country, people who change fields seem to do better because they look at a new field with a new perspective, with a new frame of mind. So I think this movement, this change, whether within scientific communities or within countries, is such a great driving force for, 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 for discovery. And it should be, it should be encouraged. Final question. Uh, I also saw that you said, I think this was maybe in your comments to the Nobel Committee, but uh, there is nothing more exciting. There's no more exciting sentence in the world than somebody standing by a microscope and saying, you got to come look at this. You still feel that? Absolutely. I, I, I think this comes full circle to what I was saying of now doing research for the love of discovery. And I had to sit down and think, what is it that I like the most? And I often say no to administrative jobs um, because I love that being in the lab. I used to travel to you know 12 trips a year mm-hmm. and I have kept that. I, I don't do more than that. And part of it is to have these discussions with students and postdocs and once in a while ask to uh, go and look at a microscope with an incredibly unexpected result. That's the... That's the biggest science joy that I still experience. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was this was fun.
really enjoyed that interview. I learned a lot, both about science and how to better consider my place in the world, I think. Maybe you did too. I don't know. Thank you, Artem, for making time and allowing me to set up in your office. This podcast will be archived on spectrumnews.org and is available wherever you find podcasts. Spotify, Google, Apple. Find it and subscribe and you'll get each episode. You can also rate and review Synaptic, which does help other people find the show. Some of the information on Beirut, the Lebanese Civil War, and the Green Line was taken from a short video produced by Timeline, which examined the work of Lebanese photographer Patrick Baz. Our theme song was written and performed by Chris Collinwood. I will talk to you on episode 8, which I've already recorded. And yeah, here comes the music to take us out. Okay, I think we're ready. What's your background? With? Uh, so, you mean like professionally?